Hey, Aaron, can you tell me the story of the tragedy of the commons? Oh, the tragedy of the commons. Yeah, that's a classic tale. It's a tall tale. It's almost like one of the mythological tales of our society, in a way. One of the big things human beings tell themselves. I've noticed as someone who argues against the way society is right now that the people who are defending the way society is right now really like this story, and they like to tell it and rely on it. It's an important story, and it probably contains, if nothing else, a type of wisdom, but it probably honestly contains wisdom. And I know that you know it pretty well, and if you don't mind me saying, I think you're a great storyteller, so I just love to be regaled if you have the time. I mean, after all, we are recording a podcast right now. Absolutely. Yeah, I set aside time just for you, just for this, just for us all. It's actually a pretty simple story. And it goes a little something like this. Sorry, can you start with Once Upon a Time? It's great that you mentioned this. That was just on the tip of my tongue. Oh, perfect. On the same page. So, Once Upon a Time, in the olden days of England, you know, the 1800s, maybe even the 1700s, there was a village. And outside of the village, there were many farmers who, importantly, kept cattle. Now, it just so happened that in this area, in this village, there was a large, really nice common parcel of land. You know, just lush green grass, as far as the eye can see. The type of land that if cows look at it, they're going to be licking their lips. They're going to be saying, let me at it. And it's held in common. It's not private property. It's not owned by any individual farmer. There's no fence around it. It's just community land, which is the way that they sort of used to do things in the old days. And so the farmers in the village let their cows go out into the fields and eat the grass, because why not? Well, yeah, I don't want to be the one to tell them they can't get at that beautiful field. Poor cows. Yeah, and you know, sometimes I like to buy meat from the butcher and they get it from the cows or buy milk from the milkery or I don't know, (laughs) the grocer. No, I think milkery (laughs) was right. So it benefits all of us to have the farmers use this land for their cows to graze. You know, why not? Nobody else is using it. There's tons of it. Land is infinite, basically, as far as we can tell. So the cows get a grazing, and for a while, it seems like everything's going fine. But then every individual farmer starts thinking to themselves, hey, there's all this free land here. There's so much. There's so much land. And we're all allowed to graze on it. If I get a few more cows, I can make even more money. And that benefits me individually. So they do. And then the other farmers also say, hey, we could get a few more cows too. We could graze this land. And then after a while, people start to see that parts of the land aren't so lush and green anymore. You know, there's been a lot of cattle grazing there. So these farmers are thinking, they're not talking to each other, they're just thinking to themselves privately. Well, usually I'd be limited on how many cows I can raise and how much milk I can produce, how much beef I can produce, because I'd be limited by the discipline of how much land that I have access to. But now that there's this public land, it doesn't belong to anyone in particular. There's a personal advantage for me. I can just get a few extra cows here and there, sneak a few extra cows in, more cows than I can actually be responsible and take care of because the land is going to take care of that for me. No one will even notice. I'll just sneak in a few extra cows to have higher production. That's the sort of mentality that's happening in this small town. Yeah, you know how humans are. We always want more. 
more cows, more tokens. We're just driven to accumulate and succeed above all others. And so that's what these farmers are trying to do. And the land starts becoming not so lush. People start realizing, hey, maybe this isn't actually infinitely big. Like it seems that way, but then when you walk it, it's only so big, you know, and there's farms on all sides and now parts of it are becoming less lush. And well, maybe we need to graze fewer cows on this land, but I'm not gonna reduce the amount of cows that I'm holding if none of the other farmers are reducing the cows that they're holding. So all the farmers in this tiny town, they're looking at this beautiful space they all once shared, and it's being ruined by there being too many cows, and they're aware of the problem, but they're saying to themselves, well, if I reduce my amount of cows, but my neighbor is going to keep the same amount of cows, well, he gets an advantage over me in the cow competition. I'm just not going to allow that. I'm not going to unilaterally disarm on the overproduction of cows. You know, it's just one of the unhappy side effects of humanity's rational self-interest, self-maximizing nature, that when there's something being offered up for free, like big, lush, green public lands, we're going to gobble it all up until there's none left. That's just how we are. And that's what these farmers did with these lands. And in the end, it was almost a desert there. The cows ate it all clean. Ecological collapse from overconsumption. And then the cows started starving to death. And then there was no more meat at the butcher and no more milk at the milkery. And so the lesson of the tragedy of the commons is that there are only two options for the stewardship of resources, the government sector or the private sector. When you have anarchy on the field, when any individual farmer can graze their cows as much as they want with nobody to tell them no, this is what happens. You need a boss. Whether that's a king or a CEO, someone has to be at the top of a hierarchical structure commanding those below them not to let their cows eat too much. And that's why the commons are a tragedy. Just to sort of bring the audience into this world, let's just role play for a second. We're farmers, we're hungry, we've got no more beef, no more milk, and we just wish that we split up that public land into segments and sold it off. Oh, I'm so hungry. I haven't had any beef in weeks. I, I, the commons have been turned to a desert. Oh, if only we had not tried to share that land. Would you share your shoes with someone else? No, of course not. Of course not. We need private ownership. Land, shoes, whatever. It's all oh, the same. Anytime you see something spoiled, it's uh, because people tried in vain to share it. If only there was a boss of this land who would... Uh, a financial interest in keeping it sustainable. <laughs> we need the rationality of a statesman or an entrepreneur uh, to split up the land into segments and make sure it's efficiently used season after season. If we hadn't been making decisions for ourselves, oh, we'd have so much oh. steak right now. Steak and milk. Oh, I need milk. Milk's floating in ah, steak. Oh, I have no milk. Oh, God. We ruined the day we tried to hold the resources in common. Oh, Damn the commons. It. Damn all the commons. It's a tragedy, I tell you. And that's, uh, yeah, that's what it was like. I am wrong. You are wrong. We are wrong. I am wrong. Seriously. 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 Wrong. 
Hey folks, this is the Seriously Wrong Podcast. This week we're going to be talking about the tragedy of the commons. Was that story we told, was that a scientific account of a factual historical event? Let me go through some of those adjectives one by one. So was it a scientific account? No. Is it a historical account? No. And finally, is it a factual account? As far as everything that you can read about it, everyone knows the answer to that is also no. It was a hypothetical example that English economist William Forster Lloyd wrote about in a pamphlet that he published in 1833. So he was just kind of saying, think about this, imagine this scenario, and imagine if this happened. It kind of has a logic to it, right? All the cow herders just want to get as much as they can, overuse the common resource. And so... That's it. Yeah, it's not history. Good to clarify that for sure. Yeah, I know, because it almost sort of seems like history, the way that people talk about it all the time. Not that it's impossible that something like that could happen, but it's just interesting that it's popularized as just a thought experiment. So I fucking hate this tragedy of the commons story. Now, look, it's a fine story. (laughs) From a storytelling (laughs) perspective. (laughs) From a storytelling perspective, I think we really put some shine on it and we made it sing. And I don't want to attack it on that front. But this is basically how this is deployed in practice. And it's the reason it's one of the most popular stories in Western capitalist society and that we use to justify the way that things are. Because it's obvious who this serves. It's obvious who benefits from the public perception that if people try to hold things in common, they'll inevitably fail. And the only answer to the question is some sort of hierarchical authority that can command and control what happens to the resources. But the evidence shows, we can talk about this a little bit later, but the evidence shows that that's not the case. And in fact, in many cases, if you properly create common spaces that are neither state nor market, it can perform better than either of them in the right context. So today on the show, we want to talk about where this myth of the tragedy of the commons came from, what it means in the world, what the real tragedy is, and we want to talk about what the commons are and how it can work. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is proudly brought to you by Fictional Bedtime Stories for Children. Now, in our society, we have a hegemony of hierarchical capitalist thought that we need to maintain most importantly, in the minds of children. So we can use imaginary stories to make children imagine what we want them to imagine. You can read to your kids the classic story of the tragedy of the commons. Wow, that's how it always inherently happens? Thanks for teaching me. You can read them the story of Jerry, the kangaroo who just shared too much. I just wonder how many more have to die until Jerry the Kangaroo's horrifying reign of sharing ends. And you can read them An Uncommon Man, the lone entrepreneur who easily solved climate change even though he didn't have to and there was no obligation. Sounds like we can keep this industrial production throughput matrix roaring for another few decades before we have to give this climate stuff any serious thought. Fictional Bedtime Stories for Children Because someone's got to align your child with the goals and values of the rich and powerful. Today's sponsor of Seriously Wrong. This is a listener-supported podcast. We can't do it without your help. Absolutely. We can't do it without your donations. And as a way to thank the people helping us and donating, we have a bunch of great stuff on our Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash seriouslywrong, you'll get bonus episodes, access to the entire archive of episodes, 
invites to our Discord server and a private Facebook group. If you like what we do to make sure that it keeps coming and that Sean and I are safely tucked into our warm beds with rent paid every month, head over to the Patreon and help us out. We can't do it without your help. And who doesn't like podcasts? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much to everyone who already supports the show people who participate in the weekly book club readings and who give feedback, post reviews, places, and and all that sort of stuff, send words of encouragement. It means a lot to us. And you folks are just the best. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The Seriously Wrong community is super awesome. They're just great people. And shout out to librarians. You know, I was just thinking about the commons and librarians and people involved in libraries in the world today, just really holding down the fort on the commons that actually still exist in capitalist society. You know, there's not a lot and it's always being encroached on, but the libraries are just like a bastion of it. Libraries are great. You know, we're thanking the donors. I just want to also thank librarians. There's also library technicians is the name for it. There's multiple sort of layers of librarians. I don't want to leave anyone out that you're all doing awesome work. Right. And also I should say, just because this is something that happens is that when a role is esteemed in society in a way, like people acknowledge you're doing great work, could be a school teacher or whatever, being a librarian, because it's perceived as enriching, society does this weird thing where it just like penalizes and keeps people's wages down. It's like, you know, your job is too great. It's reward enough just to be able to do it. (laughs) Your job is too fancy and nice, so you don't get your fair wages. Well, you know what? I think that librarians, library techs, everyone involved in making libraries happen deserve fair and good wages. And now back to the tragedy of the commons. I think it's illuminating to look at where this story came from. So it was a hypothetical example. Originally published in this 1833 William Forster Lloyd pamphlet, What really causes this story to take off into the public consciousness is an article published in the journal Science in 1968 by an ecologist named Garrett Hardin. He called the article The Tragedy of the Commons. I think it was a phrase in the pamphlet, but I don't know if the pamphlet had titled it that. So he's the one who called it that and made that the meme that the commons are this tragedy. And then he uses this article to dissect Lloyd's story and tie that into a quote-unquote ecological worldview about how the fact of Earth's finite natural resources in combination with the welfare state providing for everybody no matter what is going to cause an ultimate Malthusian disaster because we have so many extra people being added to the mix. He basically argues it's this toxic combination of three things, population growth, finite resources, and the welfare state that's providing for people. Because if we didn't have the welfare state, people who were excessively breeding, having too many kids, they would just die off, like in the animal kingdom, when the animal kingdom overuses resources. But we're keeping them all alive. And it's going to cause global ecological collapse. This kind of argument is sort of why you see a lot where leftists who are interested in ecological stuff have an aversion to talking about population issues. These sort of like eugenicist population control arguments advanced by Hardin and others, the answer to Malthusian catastrophe, the answer to the idea that there's going to be too many people for how much resources we have. The answer to that is some sort of iron fist that forces people to reproduce a certain amount, that forces people to 
do things a certain way. Basically making these really hierarchical, often racist arguments. Hardin was a white nationalist, wasn't he? He wasn't an avowed white nationalist. So few these days are, but he associated with white nationalists and organizations that had white nationalists in them, like the Federation for American Immigration Reform, Social Contact Press, Californians for Population Stabilization. He was one of 52 signatories on a letter writing in support of Charles Murray and the bell curve when that controversy was going on in the 90s. So yes, he's never said, I'm a white nationalist, etc., etc. But he has been a lifelong advocate for not letting immigrants into the country and a lifelong associate of all the people who really, really care about that. And many of them are white nationalists. The way that the story of the tragedy of the commons is formulated by him is really rooted around this idea of overpopulation, people reproducing too much. It really reminds me of the sort of language around the population bomb released around the same time. He advocated for forcibly sterilizing people after they had one child, which in effect would mean having a group of knowing ones, people who have intellectual authority to come into communities with their own cultures around the world to forcibly sterilize people and reduce their family sizes. It's no secret that the structure of our system often advantages certain people over others. And I mean, this is the time of the civil rights era, the late 1960s. Do you think that a population control and sterilization regiment where they swing in, <laughs> just I keep on imagining military vasectomies, but I think it's maybe an, over, an overstatement of what they're calling for. But at the end of the day, even if we accept that Garrett Hardin is correct, that it would solve the issues that we face to sterilize people after they have one child, which it wouldn't because we need to make qualitative changes to our society. It's not population alone that dictates the environmental ecological crisis. But even if that were true, it's hard to imagine in the global society of the late 1960s that such a program would be enforced fairly and evenly across different class groups, different ethnic groups, different cultural groups. I think it's obvious, and I think we're all familiar enough with history to recognize that an attempt to do this has every opportunity to be some of the most horrifically totalitarian, racist, sexist, and xenophobic policies that have ever been implemented around the world from the top down. It could be absolutely horrific. Earlier, I referred to him as an ecologist. And I think, you know, we're kind of laying out all the reasons why the type of ecologist that I think it's fair to call him is an eco-fascist. There's another story that Garrett Hardin tells that's really illuminating on his mentality. It's the story of the lifeboat. In 1974, he writes Lifeboat Ethics. The lifeboat story is a masterclass in how to say something incredibly racist and white supremacist without ever actually having to say it. This story is a metaphor for the planet. He says, you know, all these people like Buckminster Fuller or whatever saying spaceship Earth, we're all on a spaceship together and we need to take care of each other. No, that's wrong. A spaceship has a commander who can order people to eat less food or not have babies or whatever. We're not on a spaceship. We're floating in a dangerous ocean, and every country is a lifeboat. Some of the lifeboats have managed to get to a place that's pretty okay, but it's really precarious. You know, it's a lifeboat. Even though America's a nice lifeboat, all these white countries are nice lifeboats, they're still lifeboats. 
And then those other lifeboats, they're crappy, they're overcrowded, some of them are sinking, they don't have enough food. The problem is people keep trying to swim from those crappy, smelly lifeboats to our pretty decent lifeboats. And then we're faced with this problem of if we let them all on board, complete catastrophe. If we let, you know, maybe one out of every 10 on board causes all these problems of which 10 do we let in and whatnot, or let none of them in. Yes, they're going to drown, but it ensures the survival of those already on board. We'll have to be on guard against boarding parties, but it's the best thing to do because what are we going to do? Give some of our food to them? We're going to starve. Right, yeah, because he poses this logical sequence that says this lifeboat can hold 50 to 60 people, something like that, maybe up to 70 or whatever. There's people in the water all around. If you let them all on, the lifeboat sinks because it's too heavy for everyone. This buoyancy metaphor is key to this <laughs> this anti-immigration argument he's making. Yeah. Because when you put too much weight on something buoyant, it pushes it down and everyone falls down and the idea is that it sinks and everyone dies. So yeah, it's just safer not to. I feel like this is the way that I've encountered it in the wild. And by the wild, I mean like Facebook groups or whatever, <laughs> BBS forums. Like sometimes I've encountered with both of these stories, both of these Garrett Hart and Little Tall Tales, these little mythological Western capitalist stories of the virtue of selfishness and the virtue of private property over common ownership. It's sometimes presented to me as, oh gosh, wish it weren't this way, but just think about it. These are the hard facts. It's just so clear when you look at these stories as mythological tellings, trying to create certain conclusions in the audience's mind. They're so weak. The buoyancy metaphor is just so inappropriate considering all the nuances of something like the global immigration debate. In reality, if you want to think of the world as different types of lifeboats and which lifeboats people are getting on and stuff like that, why do the nice lifeboats, Mr. Hardin, have secret police overthrow the democratically elected leaders of other lifeboats? There's actually more than enough room for everyone, but the people on certain lifeboats force all this extra weight sinking these lifeboats, making them barely be able to stay above the water because they're so overloaded with weight from the nice lifeboats. If we really want to think through this lifeboat metaphor, it's obvious why people might try to swim away from the sabotaged lifeboats. Yeah. And then on the nice ones, they're like, oh, if we let them in, we might have to tear up the veranda. We all have mansions on this end of the lifeboat. I don't want to give any of that up. Where is my masseuse going to stay on this lifeboat if we let all these people on here? Ugh. Maybe a more appropriate metaphor for the immigration debate would be the unthinkably large luxury yacht that is big enough for everyone and the thousands of tattered and sinking lifeboats that the, <laughs> that the luxury yacht is continually poking holes in as a matter of lifeboat policy. Yeah, it just keeps them on their toes, keeps them out of the way when we're trying to fish around them. Them, need all those fish and they're trying to eat the fish and ugh. yeah because we're running out of fish because they tried to share it too much <laughs> you know this is this big issue <laughs> this huge issue is like oh we were trying to share the ocean and whoops we shared it too hard and now there's no more fish it's fucking ridiculous it's like when people point at pictures of shit that's happening in america in capitalist America and being like, look, it's a taste of what communism is like. No, that's a taste of what capitalism is like. It's happening right now in capitalism. And it actually isn't just happening now. It happens all the time around the world. You just don't usually see it and think about it. It's the same type of thing. This whole tragedy of the commons argument. Everyone has experience with people accusing you of doing exactly what they're doing. It's a way of fucking with people. And it's a way of trying to get away with shit by confusing things. And that's exactly what the tragedy of the commons does. 
It's accusing the principle of sharing in general of causing the outcomes that not sharing objectively has all around us. One of the sub arguments of the tragedy of the commons is like, oh, because I own this land, I'm not going to overgraze it because I'd be worried about being able to use it in the future. But what often happens in practice is just the opposite, that people take these windfall gains, the natural abundance of the earth, the amount of things that could be mined or the amount of things that could be taken from a given area, the amount of produce that can be produced, whatever, and they push it to the absolute limit in the short term on a quarterly basis or a yearly basis at long-term costs because individual people don't actually, in our system, have to be invested in the long-term success of society in order to be successful now. It's disconnected. So the private property system as it currently exists is actually creating the tragedy of the commons effect in practice. So it's so fucking infuriating that people would take this hypothetical fairy story written by uh, all but open white nationalist. We mentioned in tragedy of the commons, he's arguing for controlling people's breeding and also arguing against the welfare state. And in lifeboat ethics, he's explicitly arguing against immigration, against foreign aid, and against food banks. He really doesn't like food banks, I guess, as well. These stories or whatever in his mythology and all that stuff is feeding into his desire to push for those policies. When rubber meets the road, that's the changes he wants to see in the world. No welfare state, breeding control, no foreign aid, no immigration, no food banks. If you have too many kids, you're going to watch your kids starve so you learn your lesson. Exactly. Like nature. Like his vision of nature. Yes, people might starve in nature and whatever, but like community and helping each other is also part of nature, which he apparently doesn't think about because eco-fascist. If we want to think of nature as a butcher of individuals that has this large systemic effect towards allowing starvation to happen and stuff towards some sort of mythical good end, this sort of bullshit that fascists talk about, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And it's based on picking up the tiniest examples of nature and ignoring the vast majority of what happens in nature. And in particular, when it comes to humans, everything we know about where humans came from and what makes us human is that we're a social species. The reason that COVID isolation sucks is because we are biologically dependent on being around each other. What makes us human is helping each other. And this system and this mentality that Garrett Hardin puts on peasants who are grazing common land of more and more, I need to like make as much as possible and stuff. It's ideology. This sort of stuff is actually relatively recent ways of thinking. Here, I'll tell a little imaginary story. Imagine you're a family or a group of families of primitive humans, and it's hard to hunt, let's just say for fun, brontosauruses. <laughs> this is the cave people brontosaurus metaphor. Yeah, it's like Flint. It's, it's not Flintstones technically, but the world is similar to Flintstones. There's interactions, humans and dinosaurs. Yeah, sort of imagine it like Flintstones, but with a lot less of the technology. The animals don't talk. The animals aren't used as technology. And there's a lot of differences from Flintstones, <laughs> but you can generally use that framework. There's no cars with stone. Like, let's be realistic. Sorry, the only part of Flintstones I meant is humans and dinosaurs coexisting. It's good. It's good for us to really set the stage here. So you're in a small group of cavemen, you know, you're wearing your loincloths and you eat brontosauruses, but brontosauruses are really big and really hard to catch. And so there's this one guy and he's like, oh, I'm a great hunter. I'm going to hunt this brontosaurus and then I'm going to keep it. It's mine and no one else can have it unless you do things for me. All the other cavemen excommunicate him, threaten to kill him and chase him with sticks and rocks until he leaves. And they work together because they realize 
that brontosauruses are best caught by groups of humans because humans are smaller than them, and that if they share the load of breaking up and using the parts of the brontosaurus, they can get more benefit together from all of it. It's the parable of the brontosaurus, and the lesson is that there are opportunities to generate value and community in our lives and solutions that are neither state nor market by coming together and talking about what we need deliberating, watching each other, working together towards successful ends. The end. Fascism is wrong. I just want to add a little PS on the end of that story. This didn't always happen when people were chased out like that, but in this particular instance, the really self-absorbed hunter guy, after a while of fending for himself, he came back, he apologized to the group and asked to be let back in said he would do all the feather picking duty from the brontosauruses for a whole month. He spent a lot of time picking feathers out of the brontosauruses that they caught and eventually earned people's trust back and became part of the community again. This universe, they have feathers. It's accurate to the history. Yeah, I mean, look it up. They even say it in Jurassic Park. Dinosaurs turned into birds. I mean, the remaining dinosaurs that are left are birds, is more accurate to say. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong on the Imaginary Tragedy of the Hypothetical Commons was made possible with a generous grant from the Victims of Sharing Memorial Foundation. Now, no single bit of folk wisdom has ever done quite the enormous amount of damage and destruction as the pernicious idea that sharing is caring. With a proper historical analysis, the root cause of every famine every economic depression, and every mass death has a true culprit. Sharing. Sharing kills. It's estimated that in all of human history, just over 100 billion people have ever lived, and our organization has determined that just over 80 billion of those, that's 80% of all dead people, have died from sharing. But why would sharing cause death, you ask? Well, owning property is a burden of responsibility, and sharing is freeing yourself from that responsibility, like a no-good slacker who doesn't take care of anything and just lets everything deteriorate, tragically. You know, when someone tells me that they believe in sharing, they think sharing is good, sharing is caring, I just ask them one simple question. Would you share the parenting duties of your child with a terrorist? And they come around to not sharing pretty quickly after that one. Um, representative for Victims of Sharing Memorial Foundation, I'm just, you know, I'm a regular single dad trying to do my best in the world. But I've been sharing my whole life. Does that mean I've committed murder? Yes, you have. And if you still don't understand why, I want you to imagine sharing a donut. Now imagine that the very act of sharing turns the cream inside of that donut into poisoned filling. That's what sharing is like in practice, once you get past all the lofty theories. It's a scientific historical fact that the reason we're all here today is because our ancestors refused to share every step of the way. When you have 20 potatoes and your neighbor has none, you should eat 20 delicious potatoes and watch them starve. Sure, one person may die, but if you share, you will absolutely 100% guarantee that both of you will die and all will die because nobody can live on just 10 potatoes. And even if you could, you would go insane with the siren call of sharing and murder each other. And that's a historical fact. 
Now, we want to be fair to the other side here. Some people say experiments in mass scale organized sharing have gone awry in various ways, sure, but you all at the Victims of Sharing Memorial Foundation are making ridiculous ideological assumptions that don't make any sense for the purposes of serving your political paymasters. And to that we say, that's not true. And we actually, we usually just ignore it altogether because we're much better financed than our critics. <laughs> <laughs> that is true, that's true. To us at the Victims of Sharing Memorial Foundation, our Joseph Stalin was Fred Rogers. You know, he targeted children with this sick ideology of sharing, causing millions to eat the poison donut of communal life. And our 9-11 was the invention of Napster and the Pirate Bay. In just a few short years, millions of the world's most popular recording artists starved in the largest man-made instance of artificial poverty in history. And one last crucial example about the danger of sharing. I was recently reading a troubling story about a family which tried to share their entire house with wild alligators. <laughs> this is just but one small example of where the manic ideology of sharing inevitably leads. May their triplets rest in peace. You know, I just like to point out that the coronavirus has been shared hundreds of millions of times around the world. Uh, Mists not sharing yet? <laughs> coronavirus <laughs> uh, is dead, though. Uh, and it counts as times where sharing caused the death. Absolutely. No lofty theories, just straight talk about how things actually are. That's the Victims of Sharing Memorial Foundation. Thank you for listening to our message. Please don't share it with your friends and family, but send it to them. Um, charge them to listen to it. or Make or, them earn it. Or give them charity, a charity version of it. It's not sharing if it's charity because you pity them. It's like giving to them in a sort of I'm better than you way if they can't pay you for the message. Right. We forgot to Thank mention you. entirely that as long as you do it in an I'm better than you kind of way, then you can sort of squeak it out sometimes. <laughs> it's all right. And uh, back to the show. So I think in the big story of the tragedy of the commons that we're telling today here, in the story of the story of the tragedy of the commons, Garrett Hardin's the first character, and the second character is an American economist, or political economist, if you will, named Eleanor Ostrom. She actually went by Lynn. So Lynn saw Garrett Hardin speak when he was doing a speaking tour around this. She said that his speech was sold to her as a more general discussion on the tragedy of the commons. But in effect, he was really more specifically focused on this overpopulation thing. Here's her words. He indicated that every man and every woman should be sterilized after they have one child. He was very serious about it. And I was somewhat taken aback. He, in my mind, became a totalitarian. So I've been reading a little bit about Eleanor Ostrom recently, and there's some speeches she gave that were recorded before she passed away in 2012. So I've spent a little bit of time with her as a student, I guess you could say, listening to lectures and stuff like that. And I've, I think she is so awesome. There's really something here with her work. She looked at something like the tragedy of the commons, not as simply a white supremacist mythology that's being used to justify the indefensible and that it's popular just because there's going to be financing behind it because it helps and benefits the rich and so on. Although that all might be true. I think it is. She wasn't focused on that kind of thing. She was focused on saying, okay, there's this problem that sometimes it's possible that when we share things like a common space, a common resource we can overdo it. It's possible that that happens, and that's a real problem. It's also possible that that doesn't happen. So her work, 
And the work that she ended up getting, the Nobel Prize in economics, put an asterisk on that, that it's a Nobel Prize. It's accused by some of the relatives of Nobel of not being a real Nobel Prize. It's actually called something else technically too, but it's just commonly called the Nobel Prize in economics. Yeah, it's not made by the Nobel Foundation. It's someone else made it and named it after Nobel in memorial. The Nobel Foundation does not give a prize in economics. And the relative is basically anti-economic, says that economics isn't in the spirit of the Nobel Prize. And this has been set up to try to help justify economics and like launder the reputation of the Nobel Prize into this other field. So all the critiques of the Nobel Prize and economics aside, I think they gave one to like Milton Friedman and shit. It is cool that Eleanor Ostrom won it for her work. One of only two women who's ever won this fake Nobel Prize. Just wanted to mention that too. And she was the first woman to do it. She was a woman economist in a time where there wasn't a lot of women economists. She went to an economics school that didn't have women's washrooms because it was built with the assumption that only men were going to go to university. And so they had to like work out a schedule for the times in which the small amount of women in the school would use the washrooms. She wasn't an extreme idealist. She wasn't a partisan. She was a tinkerer, an experimenter, someone who is interested in sort of like finding out the truth, whatever it was. She set out to use the experimental methods available to her to analyze what are the limitations of public space and what are the conditions that make public space like this work, publicly held resources. She ended up in her 1990 book, Governing the Commons, setting out eight different principles that undergird successful commons management as it actually exists in the world. What makes it work when it does work? What are the conditions that lead to the flourishing of a space that is neither state nor market, that is just people coming together and talking to each other about how things are going to be done, watching each other when they do things, and having a social community that moderates the way that the food is picked from the forest, the things are hunted, the cows graze, etc.? She recognized that Garrett was wrong, that this is how it is, and that it accounts for all cases. She's very interested in this idea that the world is actually complex, and it's hard to do, but we should try to think through all the complexity of it. Yeah, when you hear this argument about how holding things in common inherently makes things worse, and that's why we need multinational companies and strong top-down governments to control everything and tell people what to do. When you hear that someone won the Nobel Prize for debunking it, and then you look into it and you see that the results of what she found, we'll get into the details of these eight points, but not only can people manage things in common without those things, without the big boss, without multinationals, without top-down governments, by having shared social structures where you talk to each other and work out how to do it. When you do that, it's possible to manage these resources prudently without collapse. I read in the book Eleanor Ostrom's Rules for Radicals, which is a leftist perspective on Eleanor Ostrom, although she herself didn't necessarily identify as a leftist. Fascinating book. But they said actually that at one point, Garrett Hardin came over for dinner. Eleanor Ostrom made hamburgers and in front of some students of hers, the two of them debated in person. Ostrom, <laughs> Ostrom believed in the power of debate. It's funny when those things are lost to time. It's like nowadays they would have live streamed that thing, but... <laughs> the only details were that it was vigorous and they had hamburgers that Lynn made. I wonder who controlled the fields those cows grazed on. Had to be someone. I just love that on the Wikipedia page, right at the top, a tragedy of the commons now. It's like, this was disproved. <laughs> Eleanor Ostrom won the Nobel Prize. You can manage these resources prudently, even creating, quote, perfect order, which just sounds so... 
utopian, which I love, that it's right there. No, this argument's debunked. And actually, if we work together to manage things, we can create perfect order. It's right here. It's proven. It's economics. Something I learned in my reading also is that Lynn Ostrom wasn't a utopian in the sense that we are necessarily. She was an anti-utopian in the sense that she's against blueprints. And she was really, really concerned with focusing on areas that we could build knowledge on what was provable. I just encountered her anti-blueprintism. Aren't we also kind of anti-blueprint? Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like that's it's part of our utopianism anyway. That's why our logo is a blueprint, because it's ironic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> just checking. Because we're against blueprints. That's why our logo is a blueprint. Get it? Yeah, or in favor of many rough blueprints that we can see what works as we go. But not having one specific blueprint everyone has to follow or something like that. That's the bad kind of utopianism, for sure. Right. And this is a place we definitely 100% agree with Lynn Ostrom philosophically, is that when you have the top-down blueprints put across the board on everyone, it creates serious issues in a variety of different ways. There's social effects and there's organizational effects. What Lynn advocated for was multipolarity. She advocated for systems that were built out of many different subgroups and moving parts, multiple bases of power within a system. Would it be fair to say that she thought that local people in their neighborhoods, towns, cities, villages, etc., should be able to set their own blueprints for their own communities together, and that those solutions are going to be different in different places around the world, and that we're going to be able to find the best solutions for all these individual instances in those specific particular contexts and that we shouldn't impose everything on everyone, but we should, through all these differences, work together to not only build strong communities internally, but to have strong relationships with other communities. I honestly think that Lynn would fuck with that. Yeah, I don't want to put words <laughs> in her mouth, but it just... <laughs> In a technical sense, and the reason that she was awarded for her economic work was that she was saying, at the very least, we have to acknowledge that this is a possibility. It uses all this economic jargon to make these points, and it connects to all these reference points within economics, and it makes sense within the economic universe. She gave this example in a talk that I saw in like game theory, when participants aren't just following rules that are being enforced by some sort of enforcer, and they talk to each other. It's called cheap talk. Within their system, their name for it is cheap talk. Well, it turns out that if you make cheap talk the basis of a collaborative system, it creates trust, it creates participation. This talk isn't cheap. This is substantive talk. And game theory can only think about this in terms of enforcers and rules. It can't think of participants who change the rules as they go along. And she argues that participants who change the rules as they go along is one of the foundational structural things that makes actually existing commons in the world. And again, commons, I just want to emphasize and underline, it's really hit a new level of my consciousness in reading about Eleanor Ostrom's work here. The commons is a space that is neither market nor state, and it's a space that works when people come together and talk about it. Welcome back to another Seriously Wrong story time. I'm really excited about today's story. I think there's a real lesson we can take from this zany world we've imagined here today. The imaginary tragedy of the hypothetical price and profit market economy. Once upon a time, there was an imaginary planet where everyone meant well, and they thought they'd devised a simple enough system for the distribution and production of goods, the price and profit market economy. 
Now imagine they're going along with a sort of naive but well-meaning thought that we're just going to set prices and trade to help incentivize production according to need. And for a while, it seems to work out pretty well. And everyone thinks that things are going fine, but imagine if the price and profit market economy hypothetically had an issue with the way prices were set. That could lead to an imaginary tragedy. Sellers in this market economy set their prices based on the costs they incur as an individual producer, as well as a healthy profit margin. However, because the people in this thought experiment live on a single ecosystem together, the planet Earth, the true costs of production actually total more than just those individually affecting the individual seller. These extra costs, costs to the ecosystems, to social systems, and to the human beings who rely on them, are not factored into the price of things in this market economy. Tragedy. Everyone means well, but the prices become untethered from their effects on the system. Low prices reduced through stolen labor and overexploited resources distort the market away from the real costs of doing business. This price distortion creates a cascading effect which encourages antisocial and unecological practices that inexorably sends them shooting towards ecocide. And then, just as a thought experiment, humanity starts burning through their natural inheritance at a rapid rate because the short-term incentive is to make as much economic activity as possible. Just to demonstrate, imagine an area of ocean where you can go fishing. You know, the prudent way to manage the ocean would be according to restorative principles, pulling in fish only at the rate that can be restored and no more. Maybe using Ostrom's management techniques as a way to work together to do that. Exactly, but under the hypothetical market economy, just as a thought experiment, it would place a short-term incentive to fish faster than the fishery can bear. Incentives which cause the fish sellers to value the profit of their individual companies more more than the shepherding of the larger collective fish stock. Hypothetically, this kind of profit incentive mismanagement would eventually deplete the entire ocean of fish. Can you imagine? This situation encapsulates the self-preserving mindset behind the tragedy of the price and profit market economy. And it's not just fisheries. This hypothetical problem could apply to major rainforests, old growth forests, landfills overflowing with dangerous waste, to the very cleanliness of the air we breathe on the water we drink. Any kind of natural system that requires care and communal attention can be misused and exploited if the only concern promoted by the system is individual profit, not the real cost of drawing on natural resources and the waste that's created by the process. And so this hypothetical market economy intended to help people get the goods and services they need, devised by doe-eyed individuals with the hearts of angels, ends up accidentally, but invariably, leading to a far greater tragedy than we could ever imagine. Eventually, the total depletion of planet Earth. Our well-meaning hypothetical economy causing us and our children to boil alive in our homes and be tortured by scarcity. The involuntary extinction of the human species. Not with a bang, but with a whimper, choked out on our last breath. We call this the imaginary tragedy of the hypothetical price and profit market economy. It's just a fictional thought experiment. Hypothetical. It's not real. The end.
Okay, so let's take a look at Eleanor Ostrom's eight principles that she lays out in Governing the Commons, eight things that she found at work in real situations where people were managing commons effectively. She emphasizes that none of these things are panaceas. They all have to work together in different ways, and there's different ways they could work together. But it's sort of like a general framework for what managed communal space that is neither market nor state, but just people looks like. So the first principle here is that public commons require clearly defined boundaries, and it needs to know what limits people have within that space. One of the many variables that makes spaces held in common work in practice, and there's examples from all over the world of this sort of thing happening, the boundaries of a resource or communal space must be clear, both the physical boundaries and how much resource units you can take from that space needs to be clear to the participants. Yeah, physical and social boundaries. There's, if not explicit rules, there's common understandings about what is and isn't okay or what people do and don't usually do. And if someone just all of a sudden started picking all the apples from the apple tree and down the block for themselves, the other people would be like, hey, what's up? We all used to eat the apples and now you're taking them all. And the boundaries are clear. It's like you don't do that. Second principle is congruence between the appropriation and provision rules and the material conditions of the place or the local conditions there. Again, it's related to respecting the boundaries and the limits, but there needs to be an overlap in the understood limits and the physical limits. The rules on who gets what, what labor comes from where, and so on need to be appropriate and proportionate to that context. If that's not the case, the commons will fail. Right. As we're making these rules, they have to be related to how much benefit are we actually getting? What are the real costs that are happening in the real world? And we got to make those match. We got to find the balance there. A close listener might notice, hey, that's exactly Garrett Hardin's problem is people not doing that. That's the tragedy of the commons. Why did he come to this different conclusion? Why does his story treat this as inevitable when there's examples to the contrary? Well, his story assumes, for whatever reason, that the farmers don't talk to each other, that they don't engage in what's called cheap talk and say, hey, let's only take this much because we all need it next year. His whole premise is based on the idea, this game theory, economic idea, that they're not talking to each other. Yeah, they're all rational, individual actors. They don't have any number three collective choice arrangements in his world, procedures for making their own rules. But when you add that in as one of these eight things, number three, it's part of the group of things that makes this work really well. Having systems where the people who are affected by rules can participate in modifying the rules. Right. And that's awesome. It's such a basic point, but it's so important that there's just evidence to show there's theoretical and material evidence, examples from the world, that when people have the opportunity to speak to each other about resource management on the local level, there's tons of examples throughout history that they self-organize, they create their own rule sets. And number four here is monitoring. Monitoring needs to happen in order to have a successful common. So you need to have people who are keeping watch. And so that can be people who are either accountable to the people who are, for example, picking the fruit, getting their cattle to graze, et cetera, or it can be the people themselves. And there's a lot of evidence to show that when people who are in the example that Aaron gave, picking the fruit of a place or whatever, are able to see what each other is doing, their behavior changes immensely. So that's another sort of foundational piece of what makes commons management, this neither state nor market, 
for the people, by the people, stewardship of resources, what makes it work in practice. When people have the opportunity to monitor each other in a friendly way, institutions have been set up by people that have lasted for generations. The monitoring thing also is about monitoring resource conditions. We have to keep track of what people are doing to make sure nobody's doing anything that's going to break the system for everybody. But we also just need to keep track of the system. Like I think about this with climate change sometimes and like the monitoring of the global climate. That's included in this number four thing. We need to monitor resource conditions. We need to monitor if the apple tree is doing okay, we need to keep track of what's going on. We need information in order to make these smart collective decisions. Right. And in order to do that, you need to have people who are harvesting and working on the land or the resource who are aware of what healthy and unhealthy crops look like, that are aware of what good or bad growing conditions look like and this sort of thing. Like, it's not just about monitoring hypothetical assholes in communities who want to do shitty things that undermine the whole project. Although that is part of it. Yeah. Because when you talk about this kind of thing, it's one of the first things people mention. What about assholes who ruin it for everybody? Well, I'd like to say that they don't exist, but obviously they do sometimes for a variety of reasons. But we also have to check if we're all being an asshole together, you know, like if we're all following the rules as they're set, but the effect is still over harvesting. Or there could be conditions that aren't caused by people at all to monitor if there's new wildlife entering the area or weather conditions that change things. Like there's a variety of things people need to keep tabs on in order to successfully monitor a commons. And according to Eleanor Ostrom's work and the places where commons have been managed successfully, that has been one of the features. And when it comes to the assholes, number five is graduated sanctions. So basically what that means is just that offenses where people violate the rules, they're treated on a proportionate sort of step-by-step -step basis. People aren't just excluded from the community or excluded from the commons for breaking the rules. You know, Eleanor says that from a game theory perspective, she can prove why that's the bad thing to do. But also, in effect, the successful places around the world don't have this feature. Right. It makes sense to escalate response as the situation escalates. Sometimes people make mistakes. It just seems like obvious. I don't know. <laughs> it is obvious in a way. It's like obvious when you hear it. But if I was like, well, make the list of eight things that you need to successfully manage commons. Her philosophical meta-argument on this is that commons are complicated and you need all these different things coming together to make it successful. But it's complicated to describe, but it happens all the time. Yeah. And a lot of these eight things are about that question of like, what do you do with people who maybe take too much? You know, we have the monitoring, we have the graduated sanctions, and then also number six, conflict resolution mechanisms. It's not just sanctions. We don't just need to have lists of punishments for people. We also need, because this is a human process of humans talking to each other, real systems where people can work out these differences, these problems that come up in general in these groups. Like while you're managing the commons, interpersonal conflicts are going to come up and you need solid mechanisms for dealing with that. Yeah, and I, I think of conflict resolution mechanisms being something that is part of my ideal of democracy. Like when I think about democracy, and we've done shows to this effect before, uh, Democratize Everything, name of the episode to check out. But democracy isn't just casting ballots for preferred representatives at its best. It is these collective choice arrangements, as Ostrom puts it deliberative discussion between people, but it's also conflict resolution mechanisms. People follow rules better if they were involved in the making of those rules. People react better to organizational correctives, graduated sanctions, 
punishments, if they're proportionate, fair, if they can understand why they're happening, if they don't feel victimized by them, and they have mechanisms that are you know don't cost money, they're not hard to access, where they're able to work out their disputes and be able to say their case somewhere. To me, this all seems part and parcel of what makes democracy successful as a whole. So seeing it reflected in these eight principles, these eight rules, I, I like it. <laughs> yeah, I like all of them. I also like number seven, which is minimal recognition of right to organize. Basically, the idea that people need to have the right to create their own institutions with each other that aren't controlled by external government top-down authorities. In order for the people using the field in Garrett Hardin's fantasy to manage it effectively together, they need to be able to create their own rules and institutions and grouping surrounding it. They have to be able to do it themselves, not be fighting some external government authority for control over it. Right to organize, <laughs> being part of... It's an economic principle exactly, for the management yeah, exactly. of the commons. <laughs> it's basic economics. Yeah, this is <laughs> economics 101. The state can't crush non-market, non-state transactions. It's important if you want to have a stewardship of successful commons. I particularly like that point too because, again, it's like really basic, but it's also really material. In leftist politics, we encounter all of these instances where the threat is that even if you build something good, there's going to be forces from the outside that try to sabotage it. You know, if you run a successful community democracy that starts making waves, that starts challenging the local business community on the authority that they want to exercise, that challenges politicians on the authority they want to exercise by giving people and communities a voice, well, the threat is and the worry is that there could be these outside forces pushing on it. So this is really intuitive as well. I'm aware of that problem, that issue within organizing. For Eleanor Ostrom to bring that in as a principle based on a historical basis to say the places where there is the successful commons management are the places where the government is not antagonistic, gives them a minimal right to continue what they're doing. It's an important, again, basic point, but by putting all these basic points together, we're starting to make a really complex point, and I think a really rich point for analyzing how we could build more space that is neither state nor market. Yeah, absolutely. And the final one is another great one. When we're talking about larger systems than just a community and their apple tree or the fields surrounding a village, talking about bigger concerns, because you know all this so far has been about local collective choice arrangement, decision-making people controlling their own commons where they live. When we're talking about bigger things, what you need is number eight, nested enterprises. So all of these things that have been talking about of provisions and monitoring and enforcement and conflict resolution, et cetera, need to be organized together in multiple layers of nested enterprises, she calls them, which I agree. That's a, it's another, it's another really foundational thing, taking the local to the global because we do all live on a planet together and we have to take care of things like climate change that is a global commons. It's not just you and your villagers in the fields. It's all of us. I love that she addressed that. 
And she gives examples in the book of all these principles. But in the nested enterprise example, she gives the example in the Philippine Federation of Irrigation Systems. There's two distinct levels because the problems facing different levels are different and people can work at the level that actually affects them and they can synchronize the principles across levels. She also gives the examples of orchards in Spain where irrigators are organized on a basis of three or four nested levels, which are also nested in local, regional, and national government jurisdictions. This principle works in practice. So it's not just starry-eyed utopian dreaming, although we do a lot of starry-eyed utopian dreaming on the show. This stuff is really not that. I mean, it lines up with it. She's advocating for direct democracy, neither state nor market communal ownership of things. She's advocating for confederation. She's advocating for a social instead of market solution to resource management. And this is all built on the basis of economic theory. And she was awarded the Nobel Prize asterisks for economics for it. This is really exciting to me in a way of like with all the study and theoretical reading that I've done over the years, being able to like find this where the rubber meets the road guide, these eight principles for the management of this space, which is again, outside of the state and outside of the market where people can come together and do things on a large scale. The potential exists and we can prove it. Yeah. It's been subtext in this episode, but you just saying it now, like it really lines up with our utopian vision. And a lot of this really lines up specifically with what social ecology says. And I don't see any specific connection between Eleanor and Murray Bookchin in that, you know, she read him or that like, I don't, maybe that exists. I don't know about it, but in economics, there is a concept called a social ecological system. And the theoretical foundations of this concept is that human beings are part of and not separate from nature. And that the delineation between social systems and natural systems is arbitrary and artificial. And this idea in economics was first put forward in a 1998 piece called Linking the Social and Ecological Systems, Management Practices, and Social Mechanisms for Building Resilience. And this theory has been further developed since then, in the last 20 years. And it's just amazing to me that there's a separate field of thought (laughs) called Social Ecological Systems that has the same theoretical foundation, but was just founded 20 years ago rather than I don't know when to call the founding of social ecology. It evolved over a lifetime, but it's really amazing seeing these things line up because you're just like, you're reading about these eight things and you're like, oh, that's a lot like social ecology. And then you just see this connection, like her students and co-researchers are working on developing social ecological systems, frameworks for doing this. And that's what she was working on too. She has this direct connection to the other social ecology. It's amazing. One connection I'm aware of between Eleanor Ostrom and Murray Bookchin is that they both had the experience of participating in New England town meetings. They both had the experience of direct democracy under their belt. They've both been to a place where they make democratic decisions in a community. And actually, the book that I mentioned earlier, the Eleanor Ostrom Rules for Radicals book, that's where I learned that from. It mentions Bookchin a few times, not Eleanor bringing it up, but the author bringing up Bookchin. Like, I've just come to, in this reading, be like, wow, what a powerhouse. Fucking Lynn. Yeah. She went sweetie pie by the rules of the economic game. And she came out of the other end of it with their most prestigious prize saying, in a soft way, with evidence, all this stuff that we assume to be the case isn't the case. And 
there's this adage, this phrase, Ostrom's Law. When I encountered this, it gave me chills. Ostrom's Law is a principle that is named after Eleanor Ostrom, and Ostrom's Law is this. A resource arrangement that works in practice can work in theory. If that's the force that she has on economics and the direction she's helping to push economics into, caring about what actually works and making the theory around that, that's amazing. That's what economics should be. (laughs) We need to get what has worked in practice into the theory, finally, because the theory's been detached from what works in practice for a really long time. It hit me so deeply because philosophically, we're told all the time that all this stuff is impossible. The ways of managing the world that wouldn't destroy it, the ways of relating to each other that doesn't destroy each other, the way of connecting human society and the natural world. My whole life, I've encountered people talking so matter-of-factly, using this fucking tragedy of the commons bullshit or whatever other bullshit of the week to say this is all impossible. And then Eleanor Ostrom did all this fucking work and economics playing by their rules, sweetie pie, not being a radical, just doing the work according to the ways that they do the work. And at the end of the day, they have to admit something really basic, which is that it's true that sometimes something that works in theory doesn't work in practice. But it's also true that if you find something working in practice, it's possible to find the theory that justifies it. Yeah, and that theory's probably going to be more right than <laughs> theories that aren't based on things that already work in practice. It seems like a good place to start. Ostrom's law is that economics <laughs> not even necessarily should but can have a material basis. And <laughs> like <laughs> theoretical work about the future of the world, it doesn't have to, but if it works in practice, it can work in theory. I don't know. I just feel like that notion is so, that idea is so important that when we're trying to borrow from the world around us, when we're trying to look at what's happening in the world and then imagine David Graeber makes this brilliant connection in his pamphlet, Are You an Anarchist? It's more likely than you think. He talks about how people lining up and queuing at the store doesn't require anyone with the gun there telling you what to do. Everyone just sort of knows the rules and they do it. His argument that he made across his career is that all these aspects of what we'd consider philosophically from an anarchist school of thought, building spaces that are neither state nor market, social spaces, This was one of Graeber's big points, too, is that if it works in practice, we can find it working in practice around us. That means that it can work in theory. The things that are already happening, the patterns that we already see, can be part of the basis from which we build an ideal future understanding. Not as a blueprint, but as a process that builds from our inherited situation, the things around us, and sets the principles and limits that allow us to successfully reform society to be ecological and directly democratic and social instead of built on markets, commodities, and assets built on the social and the way that we care for each other. It's not just David Graeber. It's also Murray Bookchin and other social ecologists. All sorts of people make this point politically all the time. And Eleanor Ostrom was so fluent in economics that she managed to make this point in a way that they gave her the Nobel Prize in economics for it. And I feel a responsibility and duty to study Ostrom and incorporate Ostrom into the way that I see things. I feel like it's the right thing to do. And I feel like philosophically, this stuff is really strong. And this is maybe a bit of a reach, but even the example, why do people queue? Why do people get in a line instead of just going to the front of the line? It's because Ostrom's principles, to the degree that they can apply, 
all apply. People are aware of the rules. There's graduated sanctions for the rules. You don't get kicked out of the line if you try to cut. You just have to go to the end. That's the whole punishment. You get the social response of like, oh, why'd you cut that line? These design principles for common pool resources, which is the way that she puts it in economic terms, I think really we can pull on them philosophically and make connections to other spaces that are held in common. When reading about socio-ecological systems and the social-ecological model, the social sciences versions, not the Murray Bookchin versions, they talk a lot about this divide between culture and nature and that the study has been put into two separate categories, social sciences and natural sciences. But they talk about some fields that have been bridging this divide and just really important things like environmental ethics, which is a field that arose around the need to develop a philosophy of relation between humans and their environment, and political ecology, which talks about expanding ecological concerns into culture and political activity, environmental history, needing to materially document the relationships between societies and their environments, ecological economics, which examines the link between ecology and economics, and common property theory, examinations arising from resource management and dealing with dilemmas like the tragedy of the commons. And in socio-ecological systems modeling, the idea is to integrate all of these things together into a systems approach for understanding how we can collectively manage the planet that we're on together politically, socially, ecologically, and make this thing work better. I think... That's a wonderful thing <laughs> that I want to know more about. Actually, this reminds me, we haven't talked at all about Karl Marx yet. Do you mind putting on the uh, Soviet anthem, Aaron? Oh, yeah, I always have that queued up just in case it's needed. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there we go. Another person who theorized about the limits of private property was a man by the name of Karl Marx. And what Karl Marx did that made him known to so many people, that made him an inspiration to millions and millions of proletarians around the world and throughout history, working people looked to him for inspiration on how they might better take control of their lives. The reason for this, what he had done was he took the best knowledge that he could find at the time from a variety of areas in human thought and development, it includes economics and science, technology, engineering, social sciences, and he mixed that with a critique, with the assumption that the way things are isn't the way that they must necessarily be. He assumed that other alternatives were possible, and he created a synthesis of all these ideas of all these different fields and mixed in his own feelings and perspectives to build something that inspired a lot of people. And you could say they're just ideas, and it might have been something else without Marx, right? It might have been a different name, but you can see that Marx has had an impact around the world and throughout history, and you could argue to what degree it's good or bad and stuff. And the reason for that impact is because he took the big view of trying to synthesize all these different fields of thought, all the most advanced ideas that he could find, he tried to synthesize them into a theory that could be used to liberate the people of the world. The task before us in the present isn't to read aloud passages from Marx to one another as he reflected on the most advanced knowledge of his time 200 years ago, but it's to do what he did, to copy the spirit of Marx, to copy the actions that Marx took himself, the synthetic theoretical action towards liberation. That's the most important part to copy. And in the present moment, a synthesis in the modern day has to include Eleanor Ostrom. Her work is too coherent, too imminently valid, too 
theoretically sound. All of this to say is that finding brilliance like Ostrom's or finding brilliance in any corner that we might find it is the first step. And the next step is finding new ways to come together as a community to share what we're finding, to find ways to collaborate in knowledge, to have a commons of knowledge that is directed towards the liberation of people and is directed towards unleashing the creative and ethical potential of humanity to control our own lives. That was nice. Thank you. Some people call that Marxism, but you don't really need to. Some people call it social ecology, anarchism, whatever. It's, it doesn't really matter. But obviously, big ups to Marx on that. Yeah, I mean, maybe we could just say it's the sort of thing behind Marxism and social ecology and all these other fields and people and efforts and groups and movements, etc. throughout history who are pointing at this thing of how do we all get along together well on this planet, not just with the other people, but with the animals and plants and resources that make up the ecology, like everything, all of it. How do we all get along well together? I think that's what all these different thinkers and people are all really getting at. Up next on Wrong TV, Ostrom's Law and Order. In the eco-socialist utopian system, Intellectual offenses which disregard Ostrom's law are considered especially heinous. In the Library Society of Usufruct, the dedicated detectives who investigate these vicious dishonesties are members of an elite squad known as the Ostrom's Law Unit. These are their stories. Stop! Hey, hey. Like, what are you doing? Under arrest for violating Ostrom's law. Let go of me. Come along. No, no, my theory... Hey, works in practice. It can also work in theory. You can't arrest me for my beautiful logical theories. Uh, uh. The defendant is accused of ignoring thousands of examples which contradict their elegant but incorrect economic theories projecting a pattern grid world zero-sum understanding onto a social fabric which is rich and collaborative by its nature. How do you plead? My only defense, your honor, is to hit myself on the head with a frying pan, chanting, I'm a moron, I hate facts, I don't like to look at the truth, that sort of thing. Overruled. Okay, I could do it. We don't let people say things like that about themselves inside this court. I've seen enough. The defendant is guilty on all charges, and I will be throwing the book at him. The biggest, heaviest book we have. That's right. The punishment debated in the political clubs and salons of our society, reserved for only the most heinous, despicable criminals. Order. Order. That's right. You are hereby sentenced to one and a half months of vacation traveling with a counselor who is going to pretend to be your friend, but you will both know that they're not really your friend. You're going to see them as kind of like a wiener or loser at first, but over time you will come to respect them and they will change your understanding. My apologies to anyone in the audience who's shocked or afraid right now. I'm just a tough-on-crime judge.
So the tragedy of the commons refers to tragedy in the dramatic sense, and that it's a tragedy in that it's this fate, the sad fate destined to happen. And there's this other term that lit up my heart. It just made me so happy to learn about this. There's like a 1986, I think it's like a Yale economics paper that was titled The Comedy of the Commons. And I read it, and it's actually not mostly about this concept of the comedy of the commons, but I think they thought it was a good title, and it is. Which, again, in the dramatic sense, like a comedy refers to not just a funny play or movie or whatever, but something that has a happy ending. That's the old term for tragedy versus comedy. And the comedy of the commons is this idea that by coming together, by having common space, by having common resources, or by building common space, by commoning, the comedy of the commons basically says that in some circumstances, by coming together and managing resources in common, you not only don't invariably face the so-called tragedy of the commons, but there's actually benefits over doing things individually. There's an increased abundance. We've used this parable on the show before of the sharing of a big pot of soup. If you imagine there's 10 people who need to eat, each of them individually are making their own bowl of soup from ingredients in a little pot, making their one single bowl of soup. Imagine all the time that goes into that 10 people spending one hour each making themselves soup. It costs the community 10 hours for everyone to get a bowl of soup. But what you might do instead is have one person who spends two and a half hours making a big pot of soup, and then everyone can eat. So you've net saved the community. You've increased the abundance of labor hours or relaxation hours, hopefully. But you've increased the abundance of life hours within a given community through the process of collaborating and working together. And that's the basic premise of the comedy of the commons. Not only is the tragedy of commons not inherently and inextricably true, but commons management and coming together over commons can actually generate value, not in a market sense, but in a social sense. I mean, I agree with it. And, and it's something we've talked about on the show for a long time, but making the connection I've got a lot of strong feelings about the positive ways in which comedy is connected to politics and democracy. And for example, Adam Krauss, we had on the show, The Revolution Will Be Hilarious episode, he talks about how a comedic mindset and a democratic mindset are connected. So then to find that this soup parable that we've been telling for years to make this, this point, and it's also really important to me, you know, it's important to what we talk about on the show with library socialism and all this stuff, the benefits of coming together, that also being called the comedy of the commons it's so beautiful to me, I can't believe it. Yeah, I really love that reversal on the idea of the tragedy of the commons and that there can be a happy ending and that groups of people working together to commonly manage resources or to do something in common or to work with commons together. The thing that's distinct about that is that when we're working together, all those individual parts can add up to something that's even greater than what was there if we all did things apart, like the soup metaphor. But that's a foundational principle of ecology, is that all of these different parts working together or existing in relation to one another, in relationships with one another, as a whole, it's more than the sum of its parts. And when we all work together, we can create social systems and resource management systems and societies that are more than the sum of their parts, where we can get the most fruitfulness out of what we're doing here together. And that, that's a happy ending. That's a comedy. It's not a tragedy. It's a beautiful idea. I think it's a much better story. And I think it's a truer story in a lot of cases. 
it's not that tragedies can't happen with the commons, but it's that when you do it right, when you have these eight principles, there can be a really happy ending here. Ultimately, the story of the commons, the big story of the commons, is yet to be written in the way that what we do in our life and how our society responds to the threats of our lifetime. And this, I mean, the fact is that we face in the short term within our own lifetimes several extremely severe and enormous crises that pose a really real ability to cause a lot of death, destruction, chaos, potentially, I mean, extinctions, but even potentially involuntary human extinction, always a threat. And if we're going to survive and thrive in the next century, the way that the human species responds to these crises that we face, I think the answer, a big part of the answer to how we respond to this and survive and thrive and have a world for our children and grandchildren to grow up in, it's going to be through embracing this concept of the commons, this concept of spaces that are mediated socially outside of markets and outside the state. And I think this is something that Murray Bookchin recognized in his own language and that many others have recognized in yet their own languages. All these different ways to talk about the solutions that are in front of us. And there's multiple ways that we've talked about this on the show, but one way that we talk about is library socialism. And this is our lifetime that we're talking about. The age of the commons should be, if we're lucky, upon us. So it's up to us to make sure that the story of the commons is not a tragedy. Because it'd be tragic if we didn't head in that direction. The tragedy would be the absence of commons going into the future in the face of climate change and the social crisis. That's the real tragedy. Yeah. And maybe what Garrett Hardin's mythological farmers needed wasn't someone to own the property and tell them which cows can and can't graze there, but for all those farmers to get together, talk amongst themselves, and come to collective decisions about how to manage that field. And maybe they could get some chickens on there because the chickens will peck through the insects that are in the cow's poop and help to spread the poop around to grow even more lush grass. And maybe all the farmer's kids will be playing in the field now because it's so bright and wonderful and happy to be there. Like it's just, <laughs> I think there's a lot of potential for that field to become even more productive than it was before the whole process started. Not only can we manage it to sustain it, we can manage it to increase it. Increase the bounty, increase the goodness, increase the richness. When it comes to something like bovine pastures, if I recall correctly, the way that they graze and move around can be used to do carbon capture and to put carbon back into the soil, right? Like if we look at all the externalities of the system as a community and share information and a knowledge base, a knowledge commons around the world, where we could share all this information with each other so we could make decisions about communities and resources on the local level, make our practices respect every limit, starting at the local level, but confederated up. That's the vision that reading Ostrom's work has given me, that we can optimize these processes, not just for productivity, although like, you know, increased output is definitely an option. We can also optimize it to maximize the ethical management of externalities, to make all of these things part of a cohesive system where we can monitor what's going on and say, well, we're doing too much right now in too many ways and we're overspending the planet. The planet has enough of a bounty that we could have been living off the interest all this time. There's no need to spend through the savings. We're going to have to, materially speaking, find ways to be more frugal and to not use up more than we need. And I think that Lynn Ostrom's work and 
this theory of the commons is this really powerful tool that we have to deal with these problems. It turns out when you look into it, the commons, not necessarily a tragedy. Hardin argued necessarily a tragedy. This is what happens. Turns out when you look at the real world, it's not true. Yeah, fate isn't determined. There isn't one way for history to go. There only exists potentialities. It is up to us to ensure that the potentialities come forth that will benefit us and our grandchildren. I think we all agree on that. You'd have to be you'd have to be the type of caveman who gets sent out of the, the village for in order to disagree with that. <laughs> yeah. And I think we'll leave it there. This has been the Seriously Wrong Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, telling your friends about the show, leaving reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks also to the people who are monthly donors. If you're interested in starting now, hey, why not? You can get a discount if you do a year at a time. You get some cool bonus features like we talked about before. And uh, hey, you're supporting independent entertainment that has educational and information value. I don't think a little podcast can change the world. But, you know, I think it's entertaining also, right? Like, we don't have to change the world in order for this to yeah. have been worth it. No, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't want this by itself to change the world. I feel like everyone's got to work together to change the world. Like, if this just did it on its own, I don't think that would be good. Just this one podcast episode seems like that could go wrong. What if we made a mistake? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, and if you catch mistakes in this episode or any episode, feel free to let us know and we'll issue a correction. Uh, although we do try to double check our sources as best as we can, this podcast has been a record of our history of learning. <laughs> we don't approach you as people who have already studied and understand everything. We definitely have more to learn. And the feedback that we do get actually does teach us a lot as well. So thanks to everyone who does that or has done that. Sean, did you want to tell us one last story? I really want to hear about the comedy of the commons. Oh, mm, are you too tired? Mm, I am pretty tired. You know what? Let's do it. This is totally unscripted. I'm tired, but let's do it. And you're such a good storyteller too, so. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I unironically learned things about storytelling from you. Oh, and don't forget to start with Once Upon a Time. Oh, that's exactly the type of storytelling tip that I was talking about. Once upon a time, there was a bunch of individual cave people in a wild and untamed state of nature and danger. Each of them was individually catching their own brontosaurus meat, going to find their own cave to sleep in. Each of them learning how to make their own clubs and invent their own wheels from scratch. You know, it really was tragic. They were struggling all the time. Do you know how many hours it takes to pick the historically accurate feathers out of a brontosaurus? And then you're left with all this brontosaurus meat at once, and you have to fight off the scavengers, and then it rots in the sun, and then there's months and months with no T-bone brontosaurus steak at all. They had this kind of untamed, wild individualism in this cave society. You know, baby cave people would be kicked out of their cave as soon as they were born. That means that most would just cry and die, dying and crying babies everywhere. And you know, cave people thought if the baby's not strong enough, they must not deserve to have more than just a tragic life. Yeah, and it's not that the cave people were indifferent. They themselves would cry and cry too because their lives were so lonely and tragic. Their wails echoed across the savannas, jungles, and plains of the old world, but they didn't see any other way, you know? Other prehistoric animals, the T-Rexes, the Brontosauruses, the Triceratops who lived on these plains alongside with them, thought of these proto-humans as the crying animal. And, you know, maybe one of the most tragic things about this tragic early human existence was that these early humans could laugh. They had the potential to laugh, but they never did. They only cried. Because you can only really laugh when you feel safe. 
and they lived in a very, very dangerous world. So they were just crying and crying at tragedy. And it seemed like it would be tragic forever. Often while they were crying, the early humans would say, it's gonna be like this forever. And they're crying and just weeping by themselves. It's, gonna, it's never gonna change. That's part of why I'm crying. And now it, it wasn't what they believed was natural, but what ended up happening was that these humans started coming together to complain to each other. You know, they'd meet up and they would cry with someone else commiserate about their pain, about the conditions of scarcity and these burdens of individualism that they all shared. And that it was the strangest thing to them that they actually started feeling a bit better. They weren't exactly smiling and they still were crying a lot, but they found some small comfort in knowing that there were others who shared in their pain. And that recognition of a shared experience was the dawn of the commons. It went against everything they were told. It went against their religious conviction and a hostile God set out to destroy them. And it went against the natural hierarchical individualist universe that they thought that they lived in. But they started commenting. At first commiseration, but soon they were sharing tips and tricks. Sharing things they learned with each other. Their knowledge became a kind of collaborative commons, which it benefited everyone far more than they needed to put into it. In terms of economics, for every group of 100 cave people, for the simple cost of sharing your own individual tips and tricks with the groups, you would get the benefit of the pooled experience of 100 other early human cave people. So these commiserating humans are starting to common with information, and it comes up that one of the humans actually just killed a brontosaurus nearby, and they needed to run away because predators were going to come and scavenge and potentially attack. So there's a ton of big, juicy T-bone steaks nearby but they weren't able to access it by themselves. But the pooled wisdom of all these people is sort of floating around and one speaks up and says, hey, I've got an idea. It's not just an idea for themselves, you know, it's an idea for everyone to be held in common. And this was the only idea that this cave person came up with all day, but it made a big impact right here. And they realized that if they pooled resources and specialized, they could form a complementary whole that shares duties and make sure that everyone, even if they're sick, injured, an elder or a baby, could survive without having to hunt themselves. And more than one of them could live in one cave. It was the commons revolution. The amount of extra brontosaurus meat for each individual cave person through these methods was astonishing. And there were lots of edible berries and leaves, a better balanced diet overall. And they were able to look out for each other and help keep each other safe. And because they were safe and they were less angry and anxious from hunger all the time, a very strange thing started happening. These cave people, they found themselves smiling. Not just smiling occasionally, but sometimes smiling so big from how happy they were all the time that these enormous smiles started almost bursting out of their mouths in these, what were to them, very strange, audible convulsions of the throat that they'd never experienced before. Laughter, the first cave laughter. And so they're all starting to laugh. They're laughing and laughing as they're seeing this bounty, this benefit, all of this something from nothingness that came out of coming together. It was infectious. They're just laughing and laughing and commenting and commenting and 
Their laughs echoed across the hills and the jungles, and, and other nearby humans heard they were hypnotized by the strange sound of collective joy. They've never heard it before, but it was strangely familiar. It, it, a potential that was once evolved, but just never really used anymore. And they came towards it, and the community grew and grew and laughed and laughed and, and commoned and commoned. And the benefits of that commoning continued to grow, and these laughing, joyous cave people started to have a lot of extra time on their hands, and they began to develop new specialties, new possibilities for how people could spend their lives. And one of the jobs that emerged early on was the first cave clown, the first person to specialize in comedy and in making people laugh. And of course, this only made their laughter more and more intense and more and more frequent as this original cave clown was always developing hilarious new costumes and enjoyable goofy shtick and physical humor for the others to enjoy, you know, pretending to almost fall into the fire or all sorts of hilarious things. And eventually, this original cave clown began to travel to other caves, helping other cave people to see what was possible and to build their own communities and to build social connections between groups, as well as just within the cave clown's old group. And uh, just as a historical note, it is believed that this cave clown's creative innovation with props accelerated human development of tool use by a huge factor. And many clowning tricks that they developed are still used by modern clowns today. Yeah, it's theorized by some anthropologists that the first wheel was actually a gag cube, believe it or not. Someone trying to make a cube that was so ridiculous that it would make everyone else laugh. And yeah, lo and behold, the first wheel. Yep, and many believe that agriculture itself was just a seed-hiding prank that got out of control. Soon, all the other animals started to think of humans as the laughing animal instead of the crying animal because they were always laughing, always big smiles from ear to ear, traveling in groups, tickling each other and chuckling. And that was all thanks to commenting the inevitable bounty that always accrues when people come together and manage the commons thoughtfully and non-hierarchically for the good of all is called the comedy of the commons a true historical story and that should be published in nature the end <laughs>